Let us continue, beloved. Just grab your Bible and turn to Romans 7. Let's just continue turning to God in all the ways that he's ordained us to these Lord's days. So let us do that. Romans chapter 7. That's where we are in our study of Romans. In the beginning, of course, God said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. That is marriage. A bond expressed in God's word without any limitations or expiries noted. Very clear. In fact, God's word makes clear elsewhere how long marriage lasts. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Marriage, as we've read, is for as long as they both shall live. In fact, that is still said in ceremonies today, right? Marriage, of course, is God's creation. He designed the institution and the terms. Israel, as revealed in the Old Testament, had a very difficult time with this. Very difficult time. From multiple wives to hardened hearts seeking out clauses to straight up sin. Israel struggled, here it is, with the permanence of marriage. Israel struggled time and again with faithfulness. Israel also very much struggled with their marriage to God, as the Old Testament also shows. Israel, of course, as we saw last week, freed to become slaves to God, and thus were covenanted to God after that. And that would be the picture in the Old Testament. God married to his people a covenant Yet again, as God remained faithful in that covenant, his bride Israel did not. As such, God gave them a picture of what indissoluble marriage really meant. He did that through the prophet Hosea. Consider this morning, God's words are strong in that book. We recognize that. But we also need to recognize when we read a book like Hosea, it's God's word. And that sometimes maybe we need strong words. Listen to the indictment on Israel's marriage behavior. I'm going to read you portions from chapter 4. It speaks for itself. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 13. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. Verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed 
because of their sacrifices. Even as God, the bridegroom, again, as we heard this morning, freed them and provided for them, Israel unfaithful, unfaithful to their bridegroom. Now, it's not a stretch to tell you in light of this passage or portions of it that we just read, that in light of behavior that is less than that, what we just read, many spouses seek to be out of their marriage today. And this is self-evident if we just look around. But for the purpose of our text this morning, all we need to observe from the prophet Hosea by way of introduction is what God does not say about marriage. Can we grab that today? In light of Israel's unfaithfulness, what we need to see, beloved, in the text is what God does not say. God does not say, I have fallen out of love with you, Israel. God does not say, I'm looking at what you're doing and how can I love you like this? God does not say, I am done with you, Israel. I am just done and walks out. Yahweh doesn't say, you committed adultery, Israel. You lusted after another. I'm done. Yahweh doesn't say that. Yahweh doesn't say, well, your behavior then has given me grounds to end my covenant with you. Yahweh does not say that to Israel. No, the covenant, the marriage between Yahweh and Israel, bride and bridegroom, was not conditioned on Israel's behavior or listen or on Israel's faithfulness, was it? The text in Hosea, the Old Testament shows this, doesn't it? Hosea specifically teaches us that once wed Israel, always wed. The message is clear. Yahweh affirms this, of course, in the passage Daryl read for us this morning. Far from forsaking Israel, Yahweh speaks, this is amazing, so we just sung, amazing love, speaks of an enduring love for his bride against this unfaithfulness, a love that Hosea 2.14 will allure her, bring her back, speak tenderly to her. And a love, Hosea 2.19, that is a union forever. That is marriage, as Hosea teaches us, for life. And that picture is precisely the picture that the Apostle Paul refers to as we open up chapter 7. That's why it's pertinent this morning. And not just marriage generally, but the permanence of marriage. Paul refers to marriage in this chapter precisely because of this, and we're going to see this, because it is for life. And as marriage is binding on spouses, as long as they both shall live, so too Paul will show law. This is precisely the point. The law, once given by God, is binding until death. Let's see now in God's word, Romans 7. Let's read the verses we'll look at this morning. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another 
to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let us pray. Our Lord in heaven, God, would you please open our eyes to see truth this morning, truth in your word. Let us receive that truth, plant it deep in us, and Lord, let us live it out, we pray, not just for our good, but your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So look at those six verses. There's two marriage unions that are in view there, and they are separated, they're divided by death. You see that? As we work through each verse this morning, we will examine both marriages. That's We're just going to do what the text does for us. We're going to look at both. So let's begin first with the principle. The principle. And we're going to see this actually right through to chapter 8. We're going to see this. The principle. Back to verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Look at that. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? This is Paul's way of saying, brothers, you should know. I'm speaking to people that should know the law. Why? Well, he goes on to say, look at this. I am speaking to you. You Romans, you Christians, you should know the law. At this point, in light of that, we need to be reminded of the context of this letter. Remember, as we pull back, it's helpful to do this. Written to the church in Rome, a church, as we learned from the outset, predominantly a cosmopolitan Gentile city. And that's what you would expect from a big city. We covered, of course, that in chapter 1. But remember this specifically. Chapter 1, verse 13. Remember this as Paul opened the letter. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. All is speaking to this group. Remember, this very much uh, reflective group of what the church would be in the first century. And brothers, there, as Paul says this, to open this letter, refers to that mix. The majority, of course, would have been Gentiles. And Paul's point, as we saw there in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, is that the gospel of God was the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes. Recall chapter 1, verse 16. The Jew first and also to the Greek. That is all saints in Rome, both. And for all saints in the early church of the first century, Pre-New Testament letters even. I want you to think about that. Often they didn't have the New Testament that we have, or at least in their hands so readily. That religion of the first century, that movement was, of course, a very Jewish-influenced religion. To be Christian was to know the Messiah of the Old Testament. And to know Christ, that Messiah, was to know of the Jewish prophecies of his coming. That was what it meant in the early church. And these prophecies were, for the most part, the only writings that the early church had. They didn't have what we have before us, the New Testament. To be Christian then in first century Rome was to know Christ and the writings. And of course, those writings were what? 
As we've just said, the Old Testament. And the Old Testament quickly became a Gentile book too. So much so that in verse 1 here, Paul can say, Brothers, I'm speaking to you. Context of letter, all of you. Those of faith, Romans 4 and so on, all of you, because you would all know the law. To be a Christian then was to know that law. Listen, it is the book, Paul could say, to all of those at faith in Rome and say, you studied that book upon your conversion. It's the book that contains the law and the manual. You know it. In the New Testament letters written by Paul, the apostle cites the Old Testament regularly. And that is from the apostle to the Gentiles because he knew what law they referred to. For the first century Christian, law was the law, the same Mosaic law of Israel. Yes, when Paul refers to law here, this is not, and let's clarify this this morning, he's not referring to law generally. He's not referring to the moral law, or even more important, he's not referring to the law of Christ or the law of God, and we'll come back to those later. No, this is, what is he referring to when he speaks of law here to open the chapter? Let's be clear, this is the Mosaic law. The law of the Old Testament, the law that the Jew and the Gentile knew. The Mosaic law given in a time and a place for a people as a reflection not just of a greater law of God, which we've studied, but a reflection of what? God himself. We studied that in Exodus, right? That's what law reveals, who God is. Now the Mosaic law was not just Israel's law. It was that, first and foremost, no doubt it was that. But it was for every proselyte to Judaism, or every convert to Yahweh prior to the church. That's the key. The law was that of Moses. So for Christians in the first century, and here in Rome, as the New Testament not yet settled, the law was unquestionably the referent for the church, the law given on Sinai. Thus, Paul can say, now look at it again, brothers, Romans, Jews, Gentiles, if you're with Yahweh... If you have faith in Yahweh, I'm speaking to you, a people that know the law. You know Yahweh and you know his law. Yes, church in Rome, my brothers and sisters, you should know this. Even more, and here's the implication of the chapter, even more, you also know, church, that there's been an administration change. You know, church, that the promised one, the Messiah, has come. And his coming has changed things, hasn't it? And primarily, here's the change, your relationship to the law and the law you know has changed. And this is it. Paul wants to be clear here on a principle that informs that change. Let's look at it again. Verse 1. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's it. That's the principle. Now, Paul uses language not only that confirms it's the Mosaic law but it would be compatible to what we learned last week. Let's dig in here. The word binding, look at the word binding there, is a word that means to be lord or to master over. Remember Israel as slaves to Pharaoh, he was lord or master over you. Remember Christians, sin once was lord and master over you, but both underwent a slave transfer, a transfer of lordship and a new master. So for Israel, from Pharaoh to Yahweh was the transfer. And for the believer, for us, that faith in Christ, it's from sin to righteousness. Here Paul has in mind the lordship then, the binding of the Mosaic law in one's life. 
And up to Christ, and here's the key, up to Christ, that law, the law, was indeed binding on a person to the point where they were married to it before Christ. However, he says, principally, it's only binding on a person as long as he lives. And this, again, is the principle. Death severs the lordship, the rule, the master of that law. That's the principle. Obviously, we can say by way of immediate implication, the laws of society are never binding on a deceased person, are they? Why? Because they're dead, right? So they're not. We understand that principle. Now we have to apply it more theologically. That's obvious. Let's just stop, though, and take stock and think for a moment. Because many can go astray here. So let's just think for a moment. Number one, remember, and let's not forget as we chart through the whole book of Romans, but specifically this section, what law is Paul talking about here? Is it all law? No. Again, I even think about verse 7. He's going to reference one of the commandments, if we were to go down there, and we'll see that next week. He's clearly referring to the Mosaic law. Two, if the people of God, Israel first, then the Gentile converts, if the people of God are no longer bound by the tenets of the Mosaic law, as we covered in Exodus, then it means, follow me, that we, the people of God today, then must have died in some way. Do you see that? If we're not following the Mosaic law, according to Paul, then we've died in some way, according to this principle. Now hold that. And then three, if the Mosaic law no longer applies to God's people, and in one sense we've died to it, here it is, then does that mean we're no longer bound by law at all? And of course, most people, well, not most, a lot of people today say what? That's right, we're not. Thankful that I have nothing more to do with law. I'm under grace. Under grace, as we've talked about. And we see where the trouble arises, don't we? Especially if we stop there. And listen, beloved, not only if we stop there, if we peek backwards, go to chapter 6, verse 14. If we want to bolster some antinomian sentiments, we would say this, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law. See that? But under grace. At face value then, if we just stop and only peek backwards and do nothing more, we're not under law, but under grace... And some would say, well, that seems plain. Now, I'm going to leave you hanging there because Paul and the text do. We're just going to follow the text verse by verse. Before we can return to that hanging question, Paul gives us verses 2 and 3. And we're reminded of the principle so often in God's word. When we come at something that seems to say something, we what? Keep reading. And before Paul returns to the implication of death to the law, he gives a picture. So we've looked at the principle, now let's look at the picture. Let's continue reading in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man, but while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Now to us, as you look at those two verses, to us a couple thousand years later, this illustration may be unnecessary, right? Only as it pertains to the law not binding on a dead person, if we were only to look at that. We may feel that. However, I might suggest we need this illustration if for no other reason, for the institution that it actually refers to, and that, of course, is marriage. And my case in point to you is as plain as they read. Yes, the illustration and the truth is obvious, isn't it? 
Look at it again. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. It's the same thing, remember, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's a very plain in multiple places of Scripture. Now, we don't have time, nor is it the point of this text, to dig into marriage completely today. And that's why we reserve time this summer for that. We actually are blessed to see a marriage among us. We will see that. A wonderful opportunity, along with another study, to dig into marriage and all the other pieces that flow out from marriage. So stay tuned for that. And that's marriage institutionally. But today, we're, we're going to do what the text does. Paul is using marriage as an illustration of a principle. And let's stick then to what he's doing. Marriage here is a picture. It's a picture. And it's an important picture of the point that is being made. The point is to illustrate the law is not, the Mosaic law is not binding on a dead person. So here, verses 2 and 3, illustrate and illuminate the principle from verse 1. We see that. Paul employs the language and knowledge of the Mosaic law itself. Basically, under Mosaic law, the wife could not divorce the husband at all, under any condition. Now, under Roman law, either the husband or the wife were free to initiate divorce, but not with the law. Under Moses, it was the husband who held the divorce right. A divorce concession, by the way, by the way, and we need to mention this, a divorce concession in that administration of the Mosaic law was for what? What was the concession? And you know this. Why? Jesus would tell us in Matthew 19, 8, everyone comes to him and worked up why. Why did divorce happen under Moses? And he says, because of your hardness of heart. And by the way, if we were to look at Jesus' words as we should, he says, Moses authorized, not necessarily God, but he did so. Why? Because your heart is hardened. Jesus would go on also to say, and this is often overlooked in that passage, but from the beginning, what? It was not so. In other words, don't camp out in the time-stamped concession given to a hardened heart people. What's the original design that looms over all of the cosmos at all times? Marriage is for life. Never was the design for marriage to look for ripcords and such. More, the word, more, the word Paul uses for a married woman, let's dig deeper, look at verse 2, look at that word in verse 2, it literally means, if you were to look in the original, under a husband, that's what it says. Again, this reflects the headship legally in a marriage then. And finally, with respect to Mosaic law, the original language gives confirmation even more, look at the end of verse 2. Most translations, yours probably says, it says, if the husband dies, the wife is released from the law of marriage. And that's right and true, but if I was to get literal with you, the construction actually says this, the wife is released from the law of her husband. That's what that says. The wife is released from the law of her husband. Again, signaling God's design for marriage. And this would seem to point us directly to, speaking of the Mosaic Law, directly to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, that outlines such husband law. Now listen, all of that to say, before we get caught in the weeds, all of that to say, here is the point of the picture. So let's track with this, Westmount. Here's the point. All of that to say, here's the point. This is a picture to prove the principle. Give the point. Death and only death from the standpoint of the wife in ancient Israel 
was what released her from the marriage union. And that release was full upon death. It says mid-verse, if her husband dies, she is released. That's a strong verb. And it means to annul or destroy. It means the bond is, literally here it is, obliterated upon death. So grab the picture with Paul. Death severed the union, only death granted release. In verse 3, Paul ensures that we're getting the point, and we can even see today how we might have trouble getting the point, right? He does this in verse 3 by pressing the illustration. He says that if this same woman were to live with another man before the death of her spouse, look at the logic here, then naturally she's an adulteress. She is unfaithful to her husband. In other words, legally, you can't add another husband. It's impossible on earth and in heaven. Only if her husband dies then is the wife free to marry another husband. That's it. And this is what the verse plainly says. And Paul, of course, is using marriage as a picture. The point is that as in marriage, now here it is. Let's make that jump with the the natural plain truth there. Let's jump to the spiritual. So too with the law. A person cannot be under two law codes, just as they cannot serve two masters. Christian, Paul says, you're no longer under the law. Christian, you're dead to it. You're dead to it. Just as you're dead to sin. Just as you're dead to death. Now you are dead to the law. That marriage is dead. That union believer is severed. You're no longer under law. Now that's one marriage, a marriage that has died for the Christian, the original marriage before Christ that is dead to believers. And why is that marriage dead? What has severed that marriage? Well, we continue. Look next at the power in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law, look at it, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I mean, it's all right there, if we've been tracking. We're not dead, again, to nothing. We're dead, so too alive to another. Likewise, look at the beginning of verse 4, or in the same way, brothers, saints, you also have died. That's the connection to the picture. As death severed the marriage union, so too death has severed our union to the law. But how? Here's where we dig in. This is the burning questions you may have. How have we died in that sense? Well, again, we keep reading. Here's the death through the body of Christ. There it is, through Christ, through his body, through Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we died. And yes, here is where we, again, do not forget all that we've been packing on our exegetical uh, journey here, moving through Romans. We don't lose all that we've learned. We unpack it now, and it enlightens us verse by verse, chapter by chapter. What have we been learning? This is the transfer of headship from Romans 5. This is death to Adam, alive to God. This is death to sin. Do you remember Romans 6? But alive to righteousness. Through who? Christ. We've seen this. And are being baptized in Christ. Do you remember Romans 6, 1 to 4? 
And this is exactly what we covered and is stated in Romans 6, verse 5. You can even look at that. Remember, this is the truth. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We died with Christ, listen, because we are with Christ and we are in Christ. Remember, this is the doctrine we've been studying. This is union with Christ. And when we are united in a death like his, it means we died not just to sin, but remember, it means we died to the power of sin. It lost its hold on us. Now, that immediately should trigger you to, yes, with respect to the law, it should have done something else too, if, de- if that has no, sin has no power over us. It means also, remember, that we died to the power of death. Christian, you will rise again. And here it is, that economy of sin and death is actually what the law articulates. I want you to think of even law proper, but specifically the Mosaic law. This is the economy of law. It's an economy of sin and death. Think of the law given at Sinai for a time and a people. It spoke clearly in these terms. It said, such and such is sin, and the penalty for this and that is sin and death and so on. That's what law does. It articulates those things. And that's because that law of Moses was a very important guardian or a tutor, as Galatians 3.24 tells us. It was like a schoolmaster, if we were to really dig into the original, guiding, shaping the God-fearer, the one with faith in Yahweh in that time before Christ. It was the custodian of our relationship with God. And this is where the Jew got mixed up. They looked at it as the means of salvation unto God. Just do this and you'll be saved. But the point we learn in Paul's letters especially is it was never intended to be that. It was a custodian, a guardian, a tutor, and a guide for a time. It's always been the truth of the law. It doesn't save The truth of the law is that salvation, aside from the law, is by faith. Never, it's impossible to be by works of the law for any of us. But the law, listen, and here's the key, so we don't throw it all out, was the broker of a relationship with Yahweh for God's people then. Remember, when he freed them out of Egypt and he brought them to Sinai, he said, you are my people to be a people amongst the peoples, in front of the peoples, and this is how they will know you're my people. That was the purpose, because you're going to live according to this law. But it's not just for then. For God's people now, there still is a standard of righteousness. And yes, there is a law that I'm sure for many of you are burning about. What is that then, if there is no law? Listen, it's this. And there's so much more that we're going to say about this in the weeks ahead. Through the body of Christ, given up on the cross for our salvation... But Christ, given for our sanctification. And now we relate to God through who? Through law? No, through Jesus Christ. That's how we relate to God. In Old Testament Israel, it was through law and adherence to law. Here, it is through our union with Jesus Christ. It's how we relate to God. And that is how we came to God and how we remain with God. And here, Paul references this fundamental truth in salvation. The body of Christ laid down and given for us. By the way, that picture points us to Calvary and the cross. The body of Christ, right? 
And it's a very intentional image to show us death is in view. It's not just Jesus or not just Christ. He says the body of Christ so that you think death. That's the principle, right? The body of Christ laid down and in that body we too die. And then rising in death victory has brought about, if you're in Christ, a categorically new way of relating to God and to living life. There's just so much more we can say about this. Simply, I would say, not through law, but through Jesus. And again, much more to say on that before we run to abandon law. But look at this on living life in verse 4. Look at it again. So that you may belong to another. This is the death, right? In the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This death to the law through Christ's body, note this, has a production change too. Did you catch that? There's a production change in the economy. And look at the end of verse 4, and it's this. Where there was a factory before Christ under the law, bearing fruit one way, in verse 4, it's belonging to Christ now, bearing fruit for God. Now we're going to see the comparator in a moment. And indeed, this is a reminder, beloved, every human being is always bearing fruit. Everyone is bearing fruit. From our earliest years, believe it or not, we fruit bear. But how does law impact our fruit bearing? That should be your question. How do the two relate, right? Well, let's consider again all we've learned in Romans. Under the law, sin was known and it was defined. Romans 3, verse 20, by law. Sin was shown to be sin by law. Romans 4, 15. Romans 5, 13. And then, remember, under law, sin was stimulated. Now, this comes to a head. We've learned this already, but look at verse 5. He says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Do you see the production change there? That is the fruit of living under the law. Look at it. Sin awareness, sin highlight, sin production, death. And this makes sense because in our own bodies, what did we learn in Romans 5? Under Adam, our bodies of what? Not just bodies from Adam, they're bodies of death. They're bodies of flesh. And this is the extent of what law can do, right? Let's not miss this. The law itself is not evil. But the law given, as it was, certainly aroused evil in us. See that in verse 5? And it still does that, and it will. If we're in the flesh, submitting to another code and living in it, this is a greater economy of law proper, is it not? Give the toddler a law. Give the toddler a law. Tell them, don't touch that. And what do they do? Their sinful passions are aroused because you told them not to do it, right? We know this economy. Such is law's fruit in the flesh. That's the point of verse 5. And see it again in the verse. It only, that kind of economy only bears fruit for death. We're going to see how Paul will articulate this. He's going to spring off the law and talk about the frustration of law in living the Christian life. We're going to get to that later in chapter 7. This is what law does when you're living by law. By law. But now, Christian, listen. Here's the joy and the glory. You're no longer in the flesh. Listen, bodily, yes. Spiritually, no. 
Again, there's so much we need to say about flesh, but we need to pace ourselves here. And particularly in chapter 8, there's going to be a lot that Paul says about the flesh. And there, a contrast is given, flesh and the spirit. Here, as we close this passage today, the contrast is introduced in verse 6. So we're just simply introducing it. Look at it, stated plainly. But now, contrast, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, note, beloved, the same principle we see over and over again in this letter, in this Roman letter. It's the same motif that Paul keeps bringing us to. We are released, set free from one, but not as rebels onto nothing. We're set free from one to be yoked to another. Do you see that? This is the principle all the time. Set free from one, not to self, not to do what everyone to do, but yoke to another. That's what you see over and over again. We've been released from Adam. We've been released from sin. We've been released from death. And here we see that we're released from the law. All of those things. Adam, sin, death, the law. We've been released from the law and its captivity. Right? Remember that guardianship. Right? That condemnation. The law revealing our guilt. We've been released from that. Praise God. In Jesus Christ. We're released then from sin and from fruit bearing for death under the law. We're released from that, from law, so that we serve. And here's the key nexus. Let's not miss this. Again, I must keep stressing it because of our instincts and our penchants for sin. We're not released onto self. We're released to serve, look at the text, the new way. Which is the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Beloved, with law... This is the transfer from the oldness of the letter. I love that King James says that. The oldness of the letter, that's good. To the new way of the spirit, which if we add that to all that we have learned in this letter is the new way in Christ, in righteousness, in life by way of the spirit. And more, this is again, to be clear, And we just, again, are introducing this to close. Not the end of law, period. Right? Not the end of law, period. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law is Christ. So if you've been set free from the law, truly, listen to me, Christian, truly, it means you've been set free from the law so that you can be in Christ. This is really important as we close. We just need to take time to understand this. It means, listen, we are dead to the law, to that law of Moses. Do you see that? Of a time and a place. We're dead to it. This is why as I read so many people, even this week, trying to understand what pieces of the Mosaic law apply to us. What do we have to do? Do we... You know, avoid the the goat and its mother's milk. And do we do this? Is it just the Ten Commandments? In one sense, I say, and I recognize the risk in this, but we're going to study this more. All of it, we're free from that time and that place. But it's because now we have a different law economy that we submit to. Not no law. We're dead to the law of Moses, but we're now alive to listen 
law's fulfillment. And who fulfilled the law? The Son of God, Jesus Christ. And listen, this is no longer law to God, but law through God. It's no longer law to God, it's law through God in Christ. And please, see the text. It means that if you're in Christ this morning, if you're sitting here and you're in Jesus, you have not no relationship to any law. Listen, you have an entirely new relationship to the law that is in Jesus. In Christ by the new way of the Spirit. Because he fulfilled it, right? So it means this, two things. Let me just say this practically. It means all that frustration and futility under that law has been what? Fulfilled in Christ. It means all that condemnation and guilt because you couldn't and you sinned again and again has been atoned for in who? In Christ. And it means far from being renegade and rogue and you go, you're now submitted and yoked to Christ to do what? To fulfill the law yourself in a very practical sense. To live it. Remember, you can no longer say if you're in Jesus that I can't. Law just doesn't disappear when you're in Jesus. In fact, the glory, and this is my joy to always do this in the morning, is that you can. Isn't it amazing, Christian? You couldn't before, but now you can. Listen to me, that is the glory. That is the glory. You can. You have an entirely new relationship to law. Let's unpack this. In Christ, by way of the Spirit, we are dead to the law, dead to its demands, dead to its arousal, dead to its futility, and most especially, as we just sung before the message, no condemnation for those in Christ. All of that, Christian, we're gloriously free. However, we're now alive to the law of God and the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. That's our life. Yes, the great external law that is the very person of God himself. He is law. We learned that in Exodus, and, and now he is our identity. In that sense, it's theologically true to say, as Christians, we are a law unto ourselves in Christ. Law is no longer external. It's no longer a written code that we seek out on tablets and scrolls, but God's law is now written within us. And under this new way, law is our joy, and we look on it longingly. Psalm 19 Psalm 119. Now, before you take that as a subjective experience with law, remember the expression of law that God left with us that is for our completeness, edification, and our life here and now, the word of God in front of you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That law, which is really an expression of the law that now is on our hearts under the new way of the Spirit, we want to obey With a whole new heart. Yes, God's word is not only saying that believers now have the ability to do what is right. But here it is, that they will do what is right. As naturally as a tree bears fruit, so will the Christian obey. This is the new way of the new covenant. Declared by the the prophets proclaimed this, didn't they? That we, church, are the preview, the sneak preview of the new way that's just bursting forth through us. In us, it's the power that is only found in union and marriage with Christ. There is no other way. And listen, beloved, you can't relate to any law outside of Jesus Christ. Not only is the law 
embodied in God himself. You can't relate to any law. We can talk about civil authorities. We can talk about mom and dad and so on without Jesus Christ. You can't do it. And Christian, when we think about our new marriage, the death of the old marriage under the law and our new marriage with Christ, when we think about that, I want us to end with this because it is true. That is a marriage that can never be severed, right? Do you understand that? It can never be severed. Christian, if you're married to Christ, you're married to Christ for life, forever. Never be severed. And what is the implication of that? Unlike the law of Moses, right? Our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, can never die. Hence, whatever is embodied in Jesus Christ is true for us of all time. Listen, death will not do us part. Not at all. We are wed to the one who conquered the grave. The bedrock truth about God that upheld the message of Hosea is exactly the same message today. Our God never changes, does he? Never changes. God, the bridegroom, listen, is everlasting. As he was for Israel, so too for us, church. He is everlasting. No death can sever the union with Jesus. And as such, we're now slaves to God. So we've been learning. We're now married to Christ. And that is all in the new way of the Spirit. So much more to say in Romans 7 and 8. But let's pray and close for now. Father, we thank you for all the truths that your word pours out to us. Lord, never enough time to talk about the rich truths in your word. And we pray that we would take these living words, Father, and we would not only see them and understand them, but we would look at them far more than written words and understand that they are indeed on our hearts if we love you and have placed our faith and trust in your Son. So God, help us to do that now as we continue our turning to you once again in song. And we thank you that we can, in Christ's name. Amen. As we will be when he comes, let's peek into that moment when he comes, the second coming. And one of the activities associated with his coming is this, the consummation of our marriage to Jesus. The account of that is given in Revelation 19, 6-8. We'll read to close. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That indeed is ahead in our marriage to Jesus. We get to enjoy some of those previews, the preview fruits, if you will, at a table downstairs. Every single one of you are invited and welcome to join us for that. All that we'd ask before you go downstairs is maybe use the stairwell out on the foyer this way and to your left as you go out. We have a stair lift that needs to be used today and we want to give room for that, but please, you're all welcome for that. I'm going to close this now in a prayer of thanksgiving for this table. So bow your heads with me as we prepare to partake together. Father, we do thank you and we indeed rejoice that we are married to your son. And Lord, we thank you that we can enjoy fruit of that now, not just then. And Lord, as we enjoy 
fruit of that today and as an extension of our worship to you this morning, Lord, we ask that all the hard-working, loving, serving hands that prepare the food, you'd bless them, and that, Father, you'd nourish the food to our bodies, and, oh, Lord, please, be in our fellowship. Let it be edifying and upbuilding. Let it be sweet as one, Lord, that would be a fellowship that would be unlike any other, Father, one that is a glory to you. So, God, we pray this now as we head downstairs. In Christ's name, amen. We will see you downstairs.